to Fintech Business Podcast. We are here at Money 2020 in Amsterdam, and I am pleased to be joined by Natasha Vernier, whose name hopefully I said correctly, the co-founder and CEO of Compliance, Effectiveness, and Automation Platform Cable. Uh, I did have the privilege of presenting during New York Fintech Week with her co-founder. I will link that in the show notes if you want to hear more about cable and how it can help uh, automate compliance. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about how Natasha's experience building and scaling financial crime risk capabilities at Monzo laid the groundwork for founding Cable and also hear a bit about the process of raising Cable's recently announced 11 million Series A in what I'm sure was a difficult fundraising environment. With that, Natasha, thanks for taking the time to join me. How's your money 2020 going so far, besides the jet lag? Yeah. Hey, Jason, you did pronounce my name correctly, which doesn't often happen, so thank you. Uh, Money 2020 so far consists of uh, a very efficient badge collection process and getting here with you straight off the plane. So uh, good so far, but lots to do over the next few days. Uh, well, you're lucky you didn't get in uh, a couple of days ago. Apparently, there was a like countrywide train outage, uh, which I only know about from people complaining about it on Twitter, since I <laughs> usually work from home. But I, you got here safe and sound this morning. I did. Uh, before we jump into it, you recently moved from the UK to the US, which is actually the reverse of a journey I did at one point, moving from New York to London. You know, I know that I had plenty of interesting experiences where. You know, I assumed something would work one way uh, and found out it worked quite a different way, like when I couldn't get a cell phone, uh, which was great. Um, What have you found the most surprising about the transition from the UK to the United States, financial services or otherwise? Yeah, I my wife and I are still trying to work out how many main courses to order so that we don't have way too much food. That's the, the first thing. To be clear, uh, you're currently in Wisconsin, correct? I am currently in Wisconsin, yes. Uh, and I just had my first sloppy joe, which was delicious, but makes no sense as a concept of, of something that you should be picking up and eating. Uh, beyond that, uh, financial services related, uh, definitely struggling to know which bank account to open. I didn't realize quite how broken it still is in America. Uh, being in the UK and obviously previously working at Monzo, the banking choices here are pretty solid now. You can get whatever you'd like and they work pretty well and the apps do do what they need to do to enable you to manage your money. And so far, I have not found an equivalent banking app, a banking product in the US. So any, any suggestions for where I should bank, banking apps, uh, yeah, greatly appreciated. Yeah, I mean, that has been my experience living first in London and and now in Amsterdam. You know, when I tried to open, I forget, let's say HSBC or something, you know, a very, very long web form application followed by a note that said, we'll get back to you versus opening Revolut or Monzo being a fairly seamless, you know, five minute process on my phone. Same, same kind of story here in Amsterdam, actually, when I was Uh, applying for our mortgage at ABN AMRO, and this was like height of the pandemic, uh, had to trek to a branch to sign a physical KYC, you know, account onboarding card, like like wet signature, which, I mean, I guess I shouldn't have been that surprised, but found very weird uh, versus opening an account at Bonk, which again was, you know, four or five minutes on my phone. You mentioned, you know, you were early at Monzo, I think the 17th employee, if I've stalked you correctly (laughs) on LinkedIn. 
um, which incidentally just announced that it had reached monthly profitability. I actually dug into the annual report and was quite astounded at some of the sort of like business or customer level metric differences versus the American neobanks. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your journey there and what it was like? Yeah, it was a fantastic journey. I joined in January 2016. Um, yes, I think I was employee 17. And initially, I was doing anything and everything that I could to just help out. Uh, I came from corporate finance. Um, I didn't have any coding skills or marketing skills or anything that would obviously be helpful in a in new fintech. And so I had the title of business operations manager or something like that. I set up our guard distribution process and we had some fraud about four or five months into me being there. And I was asked to deal with it. And I became the one person financial crime team investigating accounts, working with our partner bank at the time, Wirecard, uh, which uh, it was a really interesting experience working with them, seeing how we were trying to do things internally in a really automated manner, automating the production of suspicious activity reports that we could pass off to them so that they could file them because they were the, the bank, of course, not us at that time. And then seeing their very manual processes to actually file those SARS officially with the National Crime Agency. Over, over the first sort of year of my time there, we were applying for our banking license, wrote the policies and procedures to get us the, the banking license from the financial crime perspective. And we just saw insane growth. Uh, I was there for just under four and a half years, and we went from no customers to four and a half million customers. And it was incredible to see. Uh, it was pretty stressful at times. I don't know that I personally would ever want to run a consumer-facing product. The customer support that comes with having a product like that, growing that quickly, is insane. Um, but it was, it was amazing. And being able to grow the financial crime team to 40 or so people by the time I left, a uh, mixture of subject matter experts, you know, hired people in from HSBC and Lloyd's with 20 years of banking experience, to, to be in the team with me alongside engineers and data scientists who had come straight out of college or not and were just uh, fantastic engineers and problem solvers. It was a really fun experience bringing the, that group of people together and building what we thought were really advanced and really effective financial crime controls. Yeah, I mean, I have also done a, a stint at a very early stage startup. I think I was like the ninth or 10th employee. And I you think, win. <laughs> well, my, mine eventually went bankrupt, so I think you probably <laughs> win. Um, but, uh, you know, thinking about like career-wise, uh, you know, would I do it again? Would, would I do it a second time? No, but I think some of the um, experiences you mentioned of just, you know, being usually young, uh, early employee, maybe not a lot of hands-on experience, and having the opportunity to, you know, work and tackle like important challenges and figure out how to solve them, you know, collaboratively with other stakeholders, uh, is just something that is very difficult to get in, you know, larger established businesses. Whether it's you know sort of a more mature fintech or a bank, where there sort of already is that operating cadence and um, policies and procedures, etc. And it's kind of like this is your silo, like go work here. So, I mean, I found that, that for me, it gave me an opportunity to learn how very different parts of a consumer-facing business intersect, right? So coming, I came from a marketing background, but I didn't know anything about 
you know, fraud risk or credit scoring or servicing and collections, and, and really got to have a front row seat to seeing those capabilities get built, which it sounds like you know, was, was your experience at Monzo, particularly with the financial crime component. <clears throat> I'm curious if you can expand a little bit on, um, let's say, the tension of you know, doing things the way that they've always been done. So you mentioned having some, some employees or team members from big establishment UK banks like HSBC versus having the space to sort of take a new approach and try to figure out a different, a better, a more efficient way of solving some of the problems you were, you know, tasked with solving. Was there, was there a tension there? It was, it was a, a bit of a mixed journey. We always had the intention of getting a banking license. So unlike a, a lot of fintechs, where the routers maybe try to become very, very big without a banking license, and then maybe or maybe not get a banking license, that was always our intention. So we wrote the policies and procedures very, very early on in Monzo's life, which meant that we had to be clear on exactly what we were planning on doing for the onboarding flow for KYC, for our screening, for our transaction monitoring. And we had to have an understanding of the transaction monitoring rules that we wanted in place. To go through that process, I was brand new to the financial crime space, and I was really lucky to have a mentor and a sort of a part-time employee at Monzo called Gemma Rogers, who was a, a deep financial crime expert who'd worked at HSBC and, and other places before that. And so together, she came with the very traditional, you know, this is how everyone else does it. This is what we think the regulation actually means. And I was coming in very, very green with no background in it, reading the regulation and saying, but the way that they do it makes no sense and we don't have to do it that way. So why don't we find this middle middle area where we can use technology in a better way, but I think we're still compliant. And together, Gemma and I found a, a set of procedures and a way that we thought we could do this that would be compliant, but in a, a slightly different way. We then had a period of time where we transitioned to being a fully licensed bank and we built out the financial crime team and we hired quite a lot of young, uh, young people, maybe with five, six years of experience. And we focused on building technology and automating all of our procedures. We built all of our transaction monitoring in-house, which I still think is the best way to do it if you want to be moving quickly and iterating on your transaction monitoring rules and using typologies to understand financial crime in a, in a really effective way. And then we got really big. And at that point, it became apparent that, okay, now we do need to bring in these people that just know how to speak to regulators, who know how to run a, a product risk process. Um, and so that's when we then went and hired our leadership team, which were those people that I mentioned, you know, 10 years at HSBC, 20 years at Barclays. Yeah. When, just for background context for folks listening who may be less familiar with the space, when you say financial crime, what kinds of activities or risks does that encompass? When I talk about it and what we meant at Monzo when I was there, this may have changed. I've been out for about three years now. Uh, we really meant anything that could come under that umbrella of financial crime. So we were talking about fraud, both, both first and third party fraud. Uh, we were talking about money laundering, terrorist financing, uh, bribery, all those sorts of uh, illicit money movements, any money that was trying to be moved off the back of an illegal offense at the, at the beginning, and the predicate offense being um, something that was illegal. Yeah. 
You're giving me flashbacks reading various uh, FATF documents <laughs> uh, explaining the predicate offenses. Um, <clears throat> switching direction a little bit uh, to focus more on cable, how did your experience you know, building and scaling these capabilities, these functions at Monzo sort of lead to the idea or lead to the desire to start your own company or, or co-found a company uh, in this space? Yeah, it's it was a direct experience that I had at Monzo. Um, the the team that I ran was in the first line of defense at the bank. So for those who don't know what the three lines of defense means, it's a structure which all regulators really require banks to set themselves up within. Um, this is true in the UK and Europe and the US and many other jurisdictions as well. In the first line of the bank are any of the teams taking on risk. And as a consumer of a bank, they're any of the teams that you would interact with. Product teams, lending teams, customer service teams, operational teams. And the second line of defense is independent testing of those teams. Have those first line teams identified their risks correctly? Have they built effective controls? Third line is internal audit, which ironically is often outsourced to an external provider. And then there's another external auditor, which is your external audit. But the, the third line is technically internal audit. At Monzo, the team that I ran was in the first line of defense. So we were building all of the controls to try and mitigate all of the risks of financial crime. We were trying to identify fraudsters, identify suspicious behavior. Uh, as I said, our team was, by the time I left, something like 40 people. And half the team were engineers and data scientists. We built a bunch of technology in-house. We built our own transaction monitoring system. And we bought identity verification providers in. We bought sanction screening in. And we spent lots and lots of money, millions a year, on those providers. And then this second line of defense team, throughout my time at Monzo, was three or four people, would come to our team, come to me once a month or so, and say that they had manually reviewed 10 of our 4.5 million accounts at the time to try and tell us if our controls were effective. And then we'd pay KPMG 100 grand to manually review 100 accounts of the 4.5 million. And no one was able to actually explain to me how effective our controls were, how to make them more effective on a proper scale. Not just, you know, this one account could have done with this one thing being different, but how do we know that our four and a half million customers, that these financial crime controls are working effectively across all of those? And no one told us how much crime we were actually stopping, which surely is the point of it all. Um, and so that was the dichotomy that I saw at Monzo. We had all of this technology and all of this resource to build controls, but we did not have anything to help us tell if those controls were effective. And the regulation requires you to know if your controls are effective. And so when I left Monzo, that was the problem that we were looking at solving. Could we build technology that automated the effectiveness testing, that regulatory requirement that is often ignored, and help banks and fintechs and, and other financial institutions become more effective at actually stopping financial crime? The, I mean, it's interesting to hear you as a professional in the space describe that. I mean, I recently finished reading a book, the name of which is completely escaping me right now, but talking, uh, sort of probing exactly that point of for many institutions, you know, AML, uh, CFT, countering the financing of terrorism, often seems to be treated as a box-checking exercise. You know, and, and this has certainly been my 
uh, I shouldn't say experience because that's not accurate, but my external view watching some of the AML-related cases in the U.S. specifically where it's like, okay, you know, the set of rules says we need to do X, Y, Z, and as long as we do X, Y, Z, even if bad stuff is still happening, like we've covered our liability. Uh, and so, you know, the point you're making about not just that first line of like, okay, we have the right... Uh, we've identified the risks, we have the right controls in place, you know, actually asking the question and measuring in an efficient and automated way, like, are these controls doing the thing that they're supposed to be doing? Yeah, I, it is, <laughs> it, it has often been a, a tick box exercise and I, it's really difficult to, it's really difficult to write regulation, period. Um, but I think it's really difficult to write regulation that you leave open to interpretation to allow companies to have their own risk appetite, their own um, customer experience as well, and then have that regulation interpreted in the way that you actually wanted it, which, which I think is the big gap here. So um, the regulators really pushed for every single bank to have you know, identity verification, KYC, transaction monitoring, all these things that they, I think that they thought would lead to stopping of more crime. But because there were no checks and balances internally, because nobody knew how effective these things were, we're now at the point where I think the regulators realize that even though all of these banks and financial institutions have those controls in place, they're still not effective. And so the regulatory scrutiny, as you've written about, has now really transferred from have they got everything in place to are those things effective? And the number of times that the, the US regulators in particular have mentioned effective controls over the last 24 months has just hugely increased. I mean, it will certainly be interesting to watch that continue to play out because my sense is, is that um, scrutiny uh, is not done. I mean, the the sort of existing way of doing it or what you described as the second line at Monza, the sort of hand review of a relatively small number of accounts, I'm assuming that that's fairly typical practice across across the industry, across geographies. Absolutely. It's the only way that I've heard of it being done. I've spoken to now at this point hundreds of banks and fintechs. One ever has told me that they've actually automated this. Absolutely. No, we don't need the sales pitch. We already solved this problem. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I mean, has it been challenging to convince customers, potential customers, that this is you know, both possible and like a worthwhile activity to do? I mean, my experience in different areas of legal and compliance, not necessarily uh, fin crime, is it can be very difficult to convince people to take a different approach than what they may have been doing for 10, 20, or 30 years and say like, oh no, like, we can do it this way and it's going to be better. Have those been difficult conversations to have? Yeah, it, there are two, two difficult things, I think, that we're facing. The first is that no one else has ever done this before. No one else has automated the effectiveness testing of financial crime controls. And that certainly leads to some of those issues that you're talking about. When I first speak to a compliance officer or a head of financial crime, um, it's a conversation of, oh, what does that even mean? Tell me how you automate it. And what data do you need to do that? And how do we know this works? And can we run a proof of concept? And who else has used this? And how well is it working? Um, and when they ask about ROI, the conversation then sometimes comes to, well, 
if you're growing really quickly, we can help you save this much headcount. And in compliance officers' minds, that's not always been a route that they could go down. And some people like having larger teams. And so the conversation of, well, let's try and reduce your team isn't one that often, often goes down well. And the other difficult thing that we're facing, I think, is that compliance officers almost by nature, maybe conservative people become compliance officers, maybe being a compliance officer makes you conservative, but they are conservative people very often. And although, again, the regulation says that the MLRO, or in, in the US, the BSA officer, is supposed to have the seniority to be able to make strategic decisions and budget to be able to achieve their goals, very few of those people actually hold the budget themselves. And so maneuvering a sales process through the compliance team and to the right people so that you can get sign-off has been something that has been been quite interesting and quite challenging. Well, and, and I think one of the additional challenges is, you know, anything in that regulatory space, you know, understandably there's risk in doing something that is novel, right? Because if, if you know, if, if you're regulator doesn't understand what it means to do this automation, you know, even if it is, you know, quote unquote, better or more effective or more efficient, you know, presumably or potentially that can lead to a conversation of like, well, the other, you know, 90 banks I supervise do it this way, you're doing it differently. Yeah. And now you need to be able to explain and justify and demonstrate, et cetera. I mean, it, it reminded me of, um, a case here in the Netherlands between Bank and the Central Bank, where uh, Bank, which is a, a Dutch neobank, um, actually sued the Central Bank uh, to get essentially permission or validation of using, I want to say it was like AI for certain money laundering screening practices. So there you had an actual, you know, very strong disincentive to try to do something different. It's like, it's usually not a good look to be suing your regulator. I didn't know that. That's, yeah, I've not heard of that before. Um, that is, it's been interesting. We've had some of our US banks go through their regulatory exams recently, and they've mentioned that they're using cable, and these banks in particular are using cable to have oversight of their fintech programs controls. So these are banking as a service banks, sponsor banks, working with fintech programs. And the, the, the word from the regulators has been as positive as it ever could be from regulators. They will, of course, never uh, you know, back particular technology providers um, but one of our one of the chief compliance officers at one of our customers his view is that as soon as the regulators see that some banks are monitoring automatically 100% of their customer base for financial crime effectiveness the regulators will require it of everybody if you are dip sampling what is usually less than 1% of accounts and your peers are automatically monitoring 100% why would the regulators not say that is now completely not okay and you need to be automatically monitoring all of your customer base. Well, that, and, and, and that connects to a theme that uh, I'm pretty sure you and I have talked about before, or your co-founder Katie and I, around um, compliance as a potential competitive advantage. I mean, I think particularly in the U.S., you know, partner banking space and, you know, and or, you know, vast platform space, the idea if I'm building a business... Uh, and I need a BAS platform or a bank partner, I want to make sure I'm selecting one that you know, is not going to run into problems with their regulators that will potentially you know, blow back and impact my ability to operate. I mean, I'm, I'm wondering if 
the conversations you've had from sort of like a sales prospect perspective, uh, are they particularly different by geography? Do you hear different things when you're talking to European, you know, banks and fintechs uh, versus UK versus US? The US banks are moving a little bit quicker, honestly, on this. So uh, almost all of our bank customers are now US-based. Um, the, the fintechs and the crypto companies based in Europe are moving along with them, but the banks here are not moving that quickly. So that has been interesting. There's certainly been more noise coming out of the OCC than there has been coming out of the FCA. So that's probably unsurprising. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, I actually don't particularly closely follow EU banking regulation, but given my uh, experience uh, applying for my mortgage, which was 100% by email... Uh, and going in to sign the physical signature card, it, it feels like there may be a bit of ground to make up from in the establishment banking sector. I could see how fintechs you know, or, or crypto-oriented companies might be more amenable to a technology solution. Um, I love that you even got me and Katie confused as to who you had a conversation with. We wear our bright pink cable hoodies at all of our conferences, and someone went up to Katie in New York and was like, oh, great to see you again. And she was like we've never met before, but you probably met my co-founder, Tash. And they were like, no, 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 it was you. And she was like, I've never been to a conference before. It was definitely Tash. And it's like two female co-founders. Everyone gets them confused, obviously. Uh, you have completely different accents. So, I mean, that, that seems we, implausible. We don't even me, look alike. So. <laughs> um, you recently closed your Series A, 11 million, uh, in a very challenging fundraising environment. Can you tell us a little bit about like the process of raising that round? Yeah. Uh, so we raised 11 million. It was led by stage two and jump capital. The thing that I really, really focused on with this fundraising round, which I hadn't done enough previously, was building really, really good relationships with VCs over a really long period of time leading up to this round. So I had been speaking to Dan at stage two for about a year, actually when he was at a previous VC, and I'd been speaking to Tarun at Jump Capital for about the same length of time. And I, they had spent so much time with me that they did truly understand what we're doing. I speak to a lot of VCs and I tell them the, the sales pitch. And then they say, oh, it's so great that you're trying to stop fraud and that you're building fraud controls. It's like, that is exactly not what we're doing. <laughs> we are doing the other thing that you've not heard of before. But if you just listen to what I said, maybe you'd understand that. Um, and that's very, very frustrating. Um, and so speaking to Dan and Tarun, I knew from very early on that they were taking a lot of time to, to truly get to know the business. And both of them spent a lot of time trying to help us. Uh, Dan at stage two helped us hire a product manager um, well before we were even fundraising, like nine, 12 months before we even were talking about fundraising. And Tarun had introduced us to a couple of customers that we had sold to. Um, and so when it came to about February of this year. We, we knew we needed to fundraise this year. I was planning on going and running a full process in kicking off in April. And I met Tarun and I met Dan and they both asked for the option to preempt our round. And I said, yes. And within three weeks, we had two term sheets, figured out how to get them to co-lead it. And four weeks later, we closed the deal. So whilst it is a really difficult fundraising environment, I think that if you have built relationships with VCs who truly understand what you're trying to do and are fortunate enough to have 
industry tailwinds. Like mm -hmm. Compliance is becoming really hot, which is kind of funny for me to, to think about. Um, I think my family and friends still like don't really know what I do and think it's like this geeky niche area of banking that most people are not interested in. But it's in the press all the time now. It is what the regulators are most interested in. And that also, of course, really helped. So those two things, the, the deep relationships with the VCs and the, the, the tailwinds in the industry just really helped. Yeah, I mean, the, the advantage to having a differentiated product is hopefully you have a first mover advantage and can build um, you know, barriers to other, other companies sort of coming in and, and making copycat kind of products. The flip side of that is if it's something, and you were saying this with sort of selling it to the banks, but if it's something that people haven't seen before on the investment side, it makes it hard to explain like, no, 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 we're not, we're not a fraud risk platform. Like that's not what we do. You know, we do this other thing and this is why, you know, it's cool and going to be a huge market and why you should write us a big check. Yeah. And the, uh, everyone always, all the VCs try to try to say, oh, so you're, you're Vanta for financial crime. It's like, I guess that's, that's an okay comparison. Vanta are obviously a hugely successful company. I think that, that they're doing awesome things. But that's not how I would describe it. But if that's how you need to talk about me, fine. <laughs> I, I suppose it helps to have the uh, pithy, like, one-line yeah. comparison. Um, I guess now, with that out of the way, you get onto the real work, right? Which is building a scalable, sustainable, hopefully one day profitable, because we care about unit economics now, uh, business. What's on the roadmap for this year? Yeah, uh, really exciting uh, stuff coming out this year. So we are working on... Automated assurance over transactions as well. So helping people understand how effective their transaction monitoring controls are, their transaction screening, those sorts of things. We're also launching credit assurance. Um, so the Cross River Bank order that was announced recently was really focused on how, uh, how Cross River Bank didn't understand enough about the lending that their fintech programs were doing. So we're launching the same automated oversight and assurance across credit controls as well as financial crime controls. Um, and we are also continuing to build out the ability for banking as a service banks to quickly onboard any fintech programs and understand the risks that those programs bring their banks and enable the banks to incorporate that risk into their own banking risk profile. So lots around the, the fintech bank landscape as well still. That's interesting. I mean, you mentioned uh, the, the Cross River order, which is really quite different from some of the other stuff we've seen, specifically Blue Ridge, in that it focuses on more fair lending concerns, which, as you pointed out, is, is quite a different sort of bucket of problems than, you know, uh, AML financial crimes. It's like, okay, if you're partnering with 10, 15, 20 fintechs who are originating loans using your license, having the appropriate uh, controls, et cetera, in place to make sure that, you as the sponsor bank are fulfilling your fair lending obligations, which, as I understand, is quite um, unique compared to the UK. I, I don't think there's quite the same history uh, of um, discrimination in credit, or maybe just a very different history of discrimination in credit. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it, it exists in some ways, but it is a different environment. Uh, there are treating customers fairly rules in the UK, which are, are, are kind of comparable, um, but it's, yeah, it's a that is where it diverges more than with the AML requirements, which are pretty similar between the countries. Um, are there any sort of emerging regulatory risk areas that are top of mind? I mean, obviously, we've been talking about 
you know, AML, CFT, and fair lending, anything else that you're sort of see on the horizon as a potential risk um, to watch out for? The things that I'm really looking out for, firstly, obviously, uh, the regulators talking more about effectiveness. I think that they're going to have to say more about what they mean by effectiveness, um, maybe steer people towards what they're expecting in terms of that oversight. Uh, so I'm looking out for that, of course. Um, and the other thing that I'm really interested to see is whether um, the CFPB come out and do anything with any of the fintechs, which will be the first fintech that gets in trouble, even though they're not directly regulated. I think that's going to be really interesting to watch. And I think if that happens, when that happens, then the entire fintech ecosystem will uh, panic and all follow each other like herds towards the technology that can help them. Uh, yeah, the, the, the CFPB's slow-footedness on some things fintech-related, I'll admit, has, has surprised me. I expected some more robust, particularly around consumer protection UDAP issues, but, I mean, it could really, really run the gamut. Um, definitely paying attention to that, and, and we'll be curious to see what, if, if anything, happens in the back half of this year. Um, last question. This is actually the first morning of Money 2020, so I can't ask you like what your favorite panel was because I don't think I have not been to one yet. I don't think you've been to one yet. Um, but are there any uh, topics or speakers you're particularly looking forward to catching in the next couple of days? I'm really looking forward to catching up with a couple of our customers, uh, Griffin, uh, awesome banking as a service platform out of the UK, and Palisade, a new crypto company. Looking forward to, to seeing them uh, getting a wry smile. Uh, from Jason for mentioning those, but I am looking forward to catching up with them. Um, otherwise, I'm really looking to speak to all of the European banking as a service providers. A lot of them are here, and I am going to ask them the question that, that you really asked. You know, wh- how how long will it be until they follow their U.S. counterparts? All right, I think that's all the time we have for this morning, Natasha. Thank you so much for taking the time. For listeners who want to follow you or learn more about Cable, where can they find you? Uh, Natasha Vernier on Twitter and LinkedIn and Cable.tech for anything about Cable. And, and we'll just uh, acknowledge we're both still on Twitter, but I feel like, you know... <laughs> um, you'll probably find me more easily on LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. By the time uh, next year rolls around, we'll see if it's still around. That's right. All right. Enjoy your conference. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jason.